to be here this morning. And again, if I can uh, just uh, reiterate the warm welcome. I know there are one or two folks from different parts of the world. Um, uh, just to highlight one of them, we've got a guy called Samson here. Give us a wave. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> those that have been in the church for a long time will know that Samson was a student here. And Islan and Ruth Williamson. They were, uh, they were very much part of your life story, weren't they? And, uh, and I know it's Ruth's funeral this Wednesday, but it's just great that you're here this Sunday uh, to share fellowship with us, as everybody who's here as a visitor, but it's, it's just nice to see Samson. Um, the other couple of things I, I want to mention before I start is that we have uh, our new pastor coming on the 20th of November, and we're having the induction event. Uh, on the Sunday evening at six o'clock. So I'd encourage you all to come along to that. It'll be a great service as we welcome Anthony uh, as part of the the ministerial team here in the church. And uh, the other thing is we've got um, our Christmas program that's sort of getting on and the publicity is about to be generated. We, We identified the theme just before I went away on holiday, which was The King is Coming which is uh, nothing to do with Anthony arriving or anything. And, uh, but, but we thought it would be a great program for, for this Christmas. And again, I, I would encourage you this Christmas to, to consider more than most Christmases, inviting people. I, I think people need to hear the Christian message maybe more pertinently and maybe are more open to it just in terms of the times that we are going through. And that certainly takes us very conveniently to Romans chapter 12, because you'll know the last time I preached, uh, I was looking at the whole question of government, and that seems to have gone well over the last couple of weeks (laughs) since my sermon. And um, and, and, uh, and, and we were looking at Romans uh, Romans 13, which talks about the authorities and government and, and Christians and interactions with society. But... This week I want to consider another kind of question, which has been very much at the heart of some of what we've been seeing in government over the last couple of weeks, which is the relationship between self-interest and common good. And and, and you'll actually hear it being discussed a lot. Some would argue that actually what brought down Liz Truss was just this dynamic in terms of Uh, political science and philosophy, which says that you have to serve people's self-interests in order to get them to serve the common good. Is it true? Isn't it true? Or you have to vanquish all self-interest in order to realize the common good. And, And you're going to see that the passage that we're looking at in Romans chapter 12 raises this whole question of being a living sacrifice. And, and it would be a really easy sermon, especially at this juncture, to preach in terms of the demand to relinquish all self-interest in the interests of the common good. And, and oftentimes that's how people interpret Romans 12. It's, it's this demand to present yourself as a complete and utter living sacrifice to give yourself to God and forget self-interest, and that will realize the common good. And, and, and oftentimes that's the way that people interpret this. And sometimes then people translate that into Christian ministry, which is I have to give up my life and serve people and give myself to people all the time to where the point I get to burn out and, and I end up dissipated. But I've at least done 
the sacrificial thing, and that's what Christian commitment looks like. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this relationship between self-interest and the common good is right at the heart of what we're dealing with in terms of Romans 12. And that actually, this question is not as straightforward as necessarily a position which says that we must vanquish all self-interest in order to serve the common good, or that self-interest will serve the common good. That actually requires us to think this through in terms of what God asks us in the pursuit of the common good. And hopefully we'll see that the pursuit of the common good is actually in our self-interest. And, and, and that, that, that Paul in Romans 12 is, is going to argue this, that actually your best interests are served by the pursuit of the common good. Now, again, uh, and not to be too political, but, but, but you will actually hear at the moment the Tory party is discussing this very phenomenon. This is right at the heart of uh, the dialogues that are happening. What represents common good? What represents self-interest? And, and, and where does that sit in terms of the function of this political party? Same goes for the church. What does the common good of the church look like, and what does that look like in terms of our self-interest? Because pursuit of common good, I would suggest, actually is in everybody's self-interest. And, and so Paul is putting forward this argument, I think, in Romans 12. Now, to recap in terms of what we've been seeing, uh, we've seen that uh, in reading Romans backwards, we realize that actually Romans is all about this conflict between two groups within a church. There was the Judeo-Christian folks who were expelled from Rome in 49 CE, and uh, they had been expelled because they had kept fighting to such an extent that the civil authorities had had to remove them, and they had been expelled, and they'd gone to live in cities like Ephesus, where some of them had met Paul. And now they were coming back to this church in Rome, and this church in Rome had been run by Gentile believers, not Judeo-Christian believers. And, and, and so now, these two groups were having to come together to form a single entity. And, and Paul's theology and thought is all directed towards us. And as he develops these themes, we see that in Romans chapter 12 and 13, he begins to talk about this idea of peace with the empire and peace with one another. How Christians should love those within and outside of the church. And last time I preached, we looked at the idea of how we should love those outside of the church. But Paul, before he looked at how we should love those outside of the church, when he saw that churches shouldn't be introspective, they have to be outward thinking, deals with the question of how we should relate to one another within the church. And he begins with this declaration about presenting ourselves as a people who are a living sacrifice. This idea, let's go to the next slide, of pursuing the common good. What is my interest and the interests of others? And do these things have to be mutually exclusive? And certainly in a society, we have very much been a society that has been focused on the me, me, me kind of mentality and self-interest. And that's what the essence of our well-being has been defined as pursuing your self-interest. And there's very little dialogue in terms of the common good. 
But I would suggest that there are now debates out there about what people's insistence on pursuing their self-interests represent vis-a-vis -vis what represents common good. And uh, again, maybe someday we'll talk about that theme and, uh, and touch on where that expresses itself in our society. But here, Paul is talking about it in terms of the church. And let's go to the next slide. And what he's saying is that we have to have a Christ likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and that Christ likeness means that we move away from the concepts of power and privilege to the prospect of peace, to the centrality of thinking about what represents the common good. And, and his, his argument is essentially that God has worked in you and he's worked in Jewish believers and he's worked in Gentiles believers and he's done this in order to move us towards this common good. A common good which is expressed in, holy, in healing and wholeness. In healing and wholeness. Now, now again, this is a kind of acid test of what we are pursuing in terms of the common good. Does this bring healing and wholeness, or does it bring brokenness and disruption? And, and again, it's very interesting to ask that question in terms of, if I pursue these things, what does it, where do I arrive in terms of this? Is it healing and wholeness? Now, does that mean we forget principle? Does that mean that there is nothing that we stand for or represent? Um, no, it doesn't, but it does mean that we have to ultimately never lose sight of this concept of God's purpose for us, which is to be in a place of healing and wholeness. And if what we're pursuing isn't moving us towards healing and wholeness, even if it requires, and, and sometimes healing and wholeness requires confrontation. So sometimes when I, I talk like this, people think it never requires confrontation. Sometimes healing and wholeness requires confrontation. So sometimes um, people think if somebody offends you or wrongs you, well, it's just a matter of let's not upset people. Let's just pretend it hasn't happened and move on from it. And that way we will have healing and wholeness. Do you know what? You won't have healing and wholeness. You know, that isn't a strategy towards healing and wholeness. It's a strategy towards bitterness and, and getting all tied up inside. So healing and wholeness in that scenario requires confrontation. But the reason you're confronting is not for power or privilege. It's in order to arrive at healing and wholeness. And that's what's driving us, the movement towards healing and wholeness. Does that make sense? So, so again, it's, it's, it's this careful balance, and, but it's that pursuit of healing and wholeness. And, and Paul is talking about, and, and the end of Romans is all about this pursuit of healing and wholeness. And he says, how are we to achieve this position? How are we to achieve this pursuit of the common good represented in healing and wholeness? And he says, through being theocentric or God-centric. Let's go to the next verse. Uh, the next slide, sorry. And, and he gives us this illustration of sacrifice. One of the frustrating things about the way our Bibles are written is that <coughs> there, there was a decision to put chapters and verses in. When it was originally written, when Paul wrote this, he didn't have any chapters or verses. And, and sometimes chapters and verses distorts 
actually the floor, the thought flow, and it interrupts it. And this is one instance in Romans chapter 12, because Romans 12 comes out of, Romans 12 verse 1 comes out of the statement at the end of chapter 11, which says, it's a doxology, which is a kind of statement of praise towards God, and it says, from God and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What he said is, it's all about God. And then he says, because it's all about God, this is how you have to respond. This is how you have to realize that point that living for him and through him and working. We have to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. He therefore says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. When he uses that word body, he doesn't just mean your physicality. Paul, Paul throughout Romans and some of his writings use body in different ways. But, but what he's representing is he's saying your whole being, your whole existence, your, your very essence, the, the raison d'etre of your very existence. He's saying, bring that to God. The reason that you're living and you're in this worldness, you bring that to God and offer it as a living sacrifice. Somebody once said the problem with a living sacrifice is that when you put it in the altar, it often jumps off. And I guess that's true. And, you know, that when we bring our existence and we offer it to God, our very existence, and say, God, I am designed for you. Again, uh, quoting the shorter catechism. And uh, not to be outdone. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it says the chief end of humanity is to, what is it? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do, do you know is there, again, really common good and self-interest? Glorify God, common good, and enjoy him forever. Self-interest. Glorify God. Live for that which is greater than you. Live for that which is more than you. You see, the, the problem with our existences and, and the problem with a lot of the ways that our societies have gone and, and the ways that we have often lived our lives is that we have lived our lives for ourselves. And to be honest, we're not a sufficient cause to live for. Just living for you and your own happiness. You need something bigger. And Paul is saying that bigger thing is God. Because from him and through him are all things. And therefore, come as a living sacrifice. Come as... Uh, bring your existence, that living being, that working out of your life on a daily basis and present it to God. He, he says it is to be holy. And, and, and again, that word holy, we, we often um, think of holy in, in terms of purity. But the word holy in the Old Testament is not a word that really deals with purity in this sense as the idea of dedication. It means something that is given over to an exclusive use. Um, I, I, um, it's the only illustration I can think of, so I apologize, okay? But, but, because we don't have many things that are holy in our lives. But, but in, in your bathrooms, you may have a toilet brush, 
that is used exclusively for one purpose. Okay? It is dedicated exclusively for that purpose. You don't use it for anything else, I hope. Okay? And, and, and that's actually the concept of holiness here. It's the concept of something that is wholly dedicated to the exclusive use of something. That's the idea. And, and so when he says, as a living sacrifice, holy, he's saying dedicate your very existence in an exclusive way to God. Holy and pleasing to God. So, so he's talking about a life that is dedicated to God in every part. And by declaring this, Paul is breaking down this idea of sacred and secular. He, he's actually saying that there is no distinction between your life in church and your life in Monday morning when you take the kids to school or when you go to be a GP or when you go to work in law enforcement, or when you go to do whatever you go and do on Monday morning. He's saying that existence, that thing that you do, that very thing, has to be dedicated to God. And, and uh, Martin Luther, uh, who, who kind of brought a transformation in thought uh, during the Reformation, this was one of the key things that he changed, was he said, the milkmaid milks the cow to the glory of God. And, and I was like, what? Because everybody said, well, the monks. In fact, uh, I was on a tour yesterday. You know, this site, this very site that we're on, has actually been a place of Christian worship for over 700 years because we're on top of a Dominican priory right here. And I uh, didn't, didn't know that before. But anyway, uh, the, this church, 700 years of worship. And, and the people that used to be here, well, well it was about... Well, it wasn't so much for the Dominicans, but the idea was withdrawing from the world and monasticism. Let's keep ourselves separate. Let's keep ourselves holy. But actually, Luther and the Protestant Reformation said, that's not holiness. Holiness is when you take your job, whatever you do, whatever you engage in, and you understand it as your spiritual act of worship to God. Whether you're a parent and it's what you do with your kids, whether it's your grandparent, whether it's you're, you're working on the roads or whether you're teaching in a university, whatever it is you're doing, whatever your very being and life is doing, it has to be dedicated in relation to God and his purposes. And you have to understand it in that way. And, and Paul uses this phrase. Um, we, we talk about, it, it says in the NIV, the proper worship, in other translations, your spiritual worship. And then uh, older translations, your reasonable worship. And uh, it's like, what, what's reasonable worship? And, and, and the idea of reasonable worship, it, it, the, the problem is the Greek word that we're trying to translate is the word logos. And it's the word, it's the idea, uh, it's a Greek concept of order, that God has so ordered the universe in a particular way, and that actually when the universe works in the way that God has ordered it, that's when it's working at its best. And, um, and the idea is he's saying, when you serve God in whatever you're doing, 
And you live for God in that. So if you're working, you're working for God and recognizing that your work, no matter what it is, is actually worship rendered to God, you are reflecting the divine order that God intends in the world. Does that make sense? So, so what he's saying is when you get up on Monday morning to do whatever you go and do, understand that as part of your worship to God as much as coming to church on a Sunday morning. I'm going to worship God in my school, like Carol does. I'm going to go and worship God in working in this shop. Or I'm going to go and worship God in working in this hospital. I'm going to go and worship God in terms of what you've called me to do. This is what Paul is describing here. He then says, um, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Now, why did monks go and live in monasteries? Because the problem is, the minute you start to engage with the world outside, it can go to one of two ways. You can be shaped by the world, or you can start to shape the world. But the problem is, is the minute you start to engage with the world, there's always a danger that you're going to get shaped by it. You know, when, I'm sure, again, if you've been a parent, and you know when your kid turns out to be a teenager, and uh, you are so concerned about the kids that they're hanging out with, even if you don't say so. Maybe that's the time when confrontation. No. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, uh, because you know. And, and, and no matter if they've been brought up in church and had uh, the best Christian education or the best influences at home, you know that the minute people start to engage in social groups, the chances are that they start to get shaped by those groups rather than shaped by those other influences. In fact, adolescence is kind of marked by that, isn't it? Maybe it happens earlier now, but where your influence diminishes and the other influences increase. And if you're a parent, that can be really scary uh, in, in terms of watching that happen. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, you see, as we engage in this act of spiritual worship, what you have to do is ensure that what's happening on the inside is shaping what's happening on the outside. And that what you shouldn't be doing is acting like everybody else in a way that denies who you truly are. Uh, that's this idea of spiritual transformation. And, and, and in this situation, he's talking particularly about how the way people derided one another within the fellowship. And what he's saying is, the church should not be acting in a way that reflects the power and privilege, reflects the divisions, reflects the derision of the wider society. The church has to be an example of inner transformation by the work of God's Spirit that generates a unity. And so as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, that's what should be happening in terms of the church. So that they become an image of God's will. So people kind of look at what's happening and say, this is what God wants. Again, it's a real acid test for a church. If you look at a church and you say, this is what God wants. The way people behave to each other, this is what God wants. The way people serve within the church, this is what God wants. The attitudes that people adopt, this is what God wants. 
if, if we aren't able to say that, Paul's saying there's a problem. He's saying that actually the inner work of the Spirit is being hindered and suppressed by all this external stuff that's going on. Because what should be happening within the church, we should come in and say, this is what God wants. People are accepted. People are healed. People discover wholeness. People are positive even when it's tough. People are full of joy. People are serving. Paul goes on to then develop this idea of service because as he set the scene, he's saying the church should be a reflection of God's will. And the reflection of God's will should be reflected in the way that we serve one another. And he falls back on one of his favorite analogies, which is a body. So he says, for by the grace given me, I say every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, um, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. What he's saying is, as we are changed from the inward out, as we allow the work of the Spirit to transform and shape and morph the church into that which is reflecting of God's will, how God desires that we relate, how God desires uh, in terms of our attitudes, how God desires that we should model and be an example. He says then what we discover is that people begin to serve each other. Let's go to the next slide. And, and, and it brings unity and service. So the transformation Whenever we give our lives and our whole existence to God, it works itself out not only in our attitude towards our work on Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, but how we serve our brothers and sisters. It works itself It has a dimension where it works itself out. And if what he says is every single one of you is part of that body. And, 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 he, um, and in this context, it would be good to know some of the Greek words uh, let's go to the next slide. The, the kind of relationships between these words. The word joy is the word kara. The word grace is the word charis. And the word gift is the word charisma. And these three words are all related. Unfortunately, English hides the relationships that you see in the Greek. But, but, but what he's saying is, he's saying God gives us something. And that's the charis. And, and, and that charis, that gift of God, should generate joy within us. And that joy should be expressed as we share that gift with others. And that's kind of what he's saying. So he's saying God has given you a gift, and as you share that gift, it will generate joy in yourself. Do you see again? Common good, self-interest. And, 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 and actually, the, his whole development of gifts as he talks about prophecy and teachers and those who empathize and those who administrate, as he goes through a whole series of gifts that we haven't got time to look at this morning, he's talking about this relationship between what God gives you, how you express that, and the joy that this brings. And that's what this passage is doing. What he's saying is, know yourself. Now, there's a, let's go to the next slide. There, there's a, a writer and thinker, and I guess you would call him a motivational speaker as well, that I've always found really, really influential. And uh, he's a man called Marcus Buckingham. I would encourage you, if you're in education or any kind of personal development, to at least engage with his work. You don't necessarily have to agree with everything he says or not, but he's worth looking at. And I think he has a Christian background. 
And uh, he says, he says, the thing that we do in our society and the way that we approach things is what we do is we say, everybody needs to focus on their weaknesses and try and improve their weaknesses. So if you're useless at something, do more of it. Okay? And, uh, and, and what does that do? Well, it makes us feel awful. Robs us of confidence, success, anything. And he says, actually, a much more fruitful strategy, and he has lots of research and everything to back this up, is actually if you play to your strength. So if you're good at something, do more of it. And, and, and play to that strength. And, and actually, don't get so worried about your weaknesses. Work towards your strengths. And, and get into places where your strengths can be realized and not your weaknesses. And uh, it's a very simple philosophy. He develops it much more. things. And, and, and Paul kind of, I think, is just saying this. And, and what he says is, Paul says, know yourself. You, you see, many of us think that we have no gifts, we have no charis, because, you know, we've experienced no success or t that we can identify We've evaluated through the deficiencies of others, so they love to point out your weaknesses and what you're not good at. Or you've been pushed in a particular direction. Here's, here's a really interesting phenomenon that happens. People find that they are good at something, but it's not necessarily a strength. Um, I, I've often had conversations with accountants, but I'm sure it goes for many occupations, where people have gone into accountancy because they're good with numbers and doing that sort of stuff, but they hate it. It's not them. It's just like, and, 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 and Marcus Buggin points out that strength is not necessarily just something you're good at. It's not even necessarily something you're good at. A strength is actually something that energizes you and makes you feel empowered. Very important distinction. Energizes you and makes you feel empowered. And, and, and as you do that, as you serve in the stuff that energizes and empowers you, you know what? You don't get burnt out. You actually get uh, revitalized. Against self-interest versus the common good. As we actually serve in terms of our strengths. Now, now, here's the thing. All of you have stuff that energizes you and vitalizes you. It's not like, well, I couldn't stand up in front and lead worship, or I can't stand up in front and do a, a sermon, well, actually, you know what? And, and for some people to do this, it would trash their whole year. It would be the worst thing ever. But actually, God's not asking you to do that. God's asking you to identify the charis that he has given you, the gift that he's given you, and serve in that area. So here's the question. What energizes you? What makes you feel empowered? What brings joy to you in terms of your service within the life of the church? Now, now it, it, serving within church should be like that. And oftentimes what happens is we feel obligated to go and do something. Oh, there's a gap there. We'll go and do it. And I know that, and as a minister, I have to emphasize this because I know what it's like trying to cover bases. But actually, that's not what Paul's describing here. He's not saying cover the bases no matter what. What he's saying is encourage the people to discover their charis, the gift that God's given them, and then serve in that area. And every single one of you here has that. 
You know, and, and, and by the way, the, oftentimes in church, the way people get into roles is that it takes a pastor or maybe somebody else phoning them up and saying, have a chat, would you consider doing this? And then they do it, right? You know what? It would be really good if we could work the other way around where you guys start to think about what is it that energizes me? And you can phone me up. I love getting phoned up. And I want to talk about what I feel being a living sacrifice means for me in the life of this church. And this is what energizes me. This is what brings me vitality and energy. It strengthens me. It makes me feel empowered. And I have joy, kara, from sharing this charisma. You know, I, I think God operates perfect economy in church. And that actually we would discover that. Now, how do you get there? Okay. Very simple tip. I've stolen this from Marcus Buckingham. Uh, you can do this for other things other than church. But he suggested getting a bit of paper and, and just write, turning it into two. Love it. Loathe it. And write down in your week what you love, what makes you feel energized, what makes you feel power, and what you hate and what drains you. So just identify it. And then look at how can I do more of that stuff and less of this stuff. See, in church, as we serve one another, oftentimes people serve in areas that they loathe because they feel obligated and they get burnt out. And often people love stuff and they don't serve in it because they think, oh, it's too self-interested. It's not common good enough. You know, I enjoy it too much. Better not do that because that's not Christian. I think Paul is providing us this image of what it means to be living sacrifices and what it expresses itself in the way that we serve within the body of Christ. But all of us are called to take our existence and express that as an act of worship within the church and out with the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the challenge of your word. Lord, we thank you that you call us to be living sacrifices. And Lord, I, I pray that as we understand what it means to be living sacrifices in every aspect of our lives, that we would reflect that dedication to you. Lord, help us to discover the things that you have called us to do. Even if they're unseen or they seem insignificant, Lord, help us to identify that which is our calling. Help us to work that out in terms of our work, in terms of our families, and in terms of the life of this church. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.